You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Scott Kapoor, who is Managing Director at A16Z, otherwise known as Andreessen Horowitz, and also the author of this amazing book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. And as I was saying to you, Scott, just before we started, when I read this book, this is like an entire my entire course in, in venture capital summarized in one book. Like, I don't even need to teach. I can just hand people the book and say, read this and skip the course altogether. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. The title of the book is Secrets of Sand Hill Road. And I think one of the things that people all around the world always wonder is, why is place so important? People in other parts of the world come to Silicon Valley and say, we want to have a Silicon Valley in Turkey. We want to have one in Kazakhstan. We want to have one in India. And they try to kind of recreate the the special sauce. What is so special about place? Do you think that the place is going to continue to be important, especially now that people have learned to work virtually and so forth? Do you think that it's going to be just the secrets of venture capital going forward, or will it continue to be secrets of Sand Hill Road? Look, I hope it's the latter, which is I do hope that the next version of the book maybe, or maybe not the next version, but the version maybe 10 years from now doesn't have Sand Hill Road in it. So, Greg, what's interesting about it is Sand Hill Road was not venture in the first instance. So there was Boston and even parts of New York were the original foundings of venture capital. Historically, what happened was a couple of things. Number one was just as part of kind of the military industrial complex, there were, you know, companies out here that kind of got started and a lot of the dollars flowed, quite frankly, in terms of basic research. There were some legal issues. So one of the big differences between Boston in particular, which was a very big hotspot for startup activity, uh, has to do with things like non-compete agreements and things of that sort. So stuff that makes the free flow of human labor and human capital easier. But what I'm most excited about, despite all the unfortunate circumstances we're all dealing with in the pandemic, is we may for the first time finally be in a, in a world where we have untethered geographic location and the location of your employer. Now, I'm not suggesting that Silicon Valley or Sand Hill Road is going away tomorrow because it is a network effect that's been built up for 70 plus years and network effects are very strong. If you imagine a world, I think what we've all learned in this pandemic is that we can do things that are untethered to our office. And that may vary by job category and, and classification to a certain extent. But you can imagine then over a 10 or 20 year period that if companies start to hire people remotely, then if we have the right incentive structures in those local geographies, we might actually have entrepreneurial ecosystems that can build up in other places. So, you know, you mentioned, Greg, um, when we were chatting that you've done some work with uh, the NBCA in Berkeley around some of these startup sessions they're doing. And the whole purpose, as you know, around that is to try to target geographies that have historically not had as much kind of success from an entrepreneurship and a venture capital perspective. And so I think we're kind of putting the building parts in place, like we're doing the education, hopefully post-pandemic, we start to see more flexibility around geography. And then I think there's a real opportunity that we could be sitting here 10, 20 years from now and finding that, you know, the kind of the fruits of Sand Hill Road ultimately can be much more readily available across lots of different geographies. I mean, the thing about venture capital is just how hard it hits beyond its weight, so to speak, right? In the universe of assets where you have a fixed income and public equity and real estate and all this, I mean, venture capital is just this tiny little, almost insignificant blip of capital on on the global radar. And yet none of the companies that we know now of as household names that have been formed in the last 30 years would have been conceivable really without, without venture capital. And yet there are other ways that companies get started both historically and, and geographically. 
just to summarize the nutshell of the book really is what is so special about venture capital? Why is it so powerful on a dollar for dollar basis? You're absolutely right in terms of, look, on a dollar's basis, venture capital barely registers compared to other private assets and certainly compared to public assets. I think the reason why venture capital has persisted is it fills a gap in the market that that just doesn't otherwise get satisfied, which is for many businesses, going to a bank and getting a loan obviously is a very good and a, and a well-trodden path to getting funding. But for other things where you have long lead times, you have people really trying to take on risk that is just well beyond what a bank or other financing source can do, there's really not anything other than venture capital that can provide that. What's miraculous about venture capital is we figured out how to align all the incentives, which is if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to start something that's going to require a decent amount of capital to get going, and I'm signed up to try to go after a market that I think is big enough to support a big company, it turns out that the venture capitalist incentives are exactly aligned. That's basically how we get measured and how we get ultimately the difference between success and failure in our business is, do we find those few opportunities that kind of can become the next Facebooks, the next Googles, Airbnbs of the world? And so you've got this, in a weird way, this perfect alignment uh, when it works well. Now, there's often times where it doesn't work well, and that alignment doesn't work. But when aligned, you have entrepreneurs who want to build something big that will take seven, 10 years and involve a very high risk capital. You've got venture capitalists who are incented the exact same way, which is the investors who give them money want to see that. And when that works, it's a beautiful tune, essentially, and allows us to actually align incentives in a way that just doesn't exist in other forms of financing. So I think venture capital plays a unique role there. But look, as we talk about in the book, sometimes if those incentives aren't properly aligned, that definitely there are issues certainly that can come out of that as well. So in in my career, I've taught in finance, I've taught strategy, I've taught law, and I've taught organizational economics. And while venture capital seems to be or is considered a branch of finance, I find that finance is probably the the least useful discipline when it comes to understanding venture capital, right? So in in a traditional finance class, you learn about, you know, valuation and you learn about probabilities assigned to different states and then discount rates and so forth. And while those things are helpful, it it seems like if you're too much finance, it might even get in the way of being a good venture capitalist. What makes venture capital different from other branches of finance? And why might someone who's a really good buyout PE type finance person, why might they you know, be incapable of being a good venture capitalist? I think there's a couple issues there to untangle. Number one is essentially what we are doing in venture capital is we are basically looking for things that have uncapped upside. And then we do have capped downside, obviously, because we can only lose, obviously, the money we put in. So we're looking for asymmetric opportunities In some respects, it almost looks like uh, to go to your normal finance world, it looks like out of the money call options is one way to think about what we're doing. Now, the problem is, and if for those of you who are fans, of course, of Black Shoal, what do you care about if you're trying to value an option? Well, you care about time to exit and volatility probably are the two largest determinants of value within an option. And that's basically what venture capital allows us to do, which is it allows us to take on significant amounts of volatility and also to have a very long time to exit. So that's why, at least in theory, we perceive those options have value. Now, many of them, to continue the analogy, will expire worthless, which is also, I think, the other side of this business is you can't measure success based upon your percentage success or failure rate. In other words, if you invest in 10 companies and you get five or six or seven of them, we don't really know, quite frankly, whether you're good as a venture capitalist. It doesn't really tell us anything. Everything here is about the magnitude of the winners. And the reason for that, I believe, is because We really don't know, given the earliness of the stage of which we're investing, it's really hard to know what will work. And so we're trying to use heuristics, right? We're trying to say, okay, if it works, is the market big enough? And therefore, could the market sustain a very important standalone company? And then 
is this the team ultimately that can do that? And of course, if we knew the answers to those a priori, we would, of course, only invest in those winners and we wouldn't invest in any of the ones that don't work out. But these are, by definition, human beings starting companies, which means you've got all the unpredictability of interpersonal relationships in addition to the market that really drives things. So the fundamental way to think about our business is you could make one or two very good decisions if those decisions turn out to be uncapped upside and deliver on that. And no one really cares, as crazy as this sounds, no one cares if you've got the other eight wrong because the math can still work out in your favor. So it does... It almost goes against everything that you would learn in finance or everything if you come from an academic environment where the goal is always to get an A on a test. Here, you might actually get a failing grade if you look at your percentage success rate, but you could get an A based upon dollar appreciation that you realize on one or two kind of discrete investments. That's sort of the real option way of thinking, which has made its way into finance. And it's a very difficult thing to convince, say, a traditional CFO to think about. But I think it goes beyond that, right? Because even in kind of real option thinking, the distribution of the payoffs is exogenous, right? It doesn't really depend on the actions of the investor. So in traditional finance, the investor is passive, but in all forms of private equity, especially venture capital, the role of the venture capitalist is very much as an active advisor and mentor to the businesses. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect? I think that's probably the least understood aspect of venture capital. You're not just placing bets, but there's this, this very deep involvement with the business. And in fact, maybe talk a little bit about how Andreessen approaches this relative to some of the other venture capitalists. Yeah, happy to do that. And let me start, though, with hopefully the obvious, but let me make sure it's very clear, which is you're absolutely right, which is venture capitalists take a much more active role. And, and that varies, obviously, by venture capitalists in companies than do maybe a traditional public market equity investor. But I want to be very clear at the end of the day, look, success or failure in these companies is a function of the great work that the entrepreneurs do. So, you know, when things go well, we get to ride along and celebrate alongside them. But um, I also so don't want to overstate the role of the venture capitalist because these are ultimately businesses that have to be run by managers who understand the day-to-day -day business. So the way we think about it in Dreesen Horowitz is, let me start at the macro, which is this business has become very competitive. It used to be that kind of access to capital was competitive differentiation in this market. So if I could raise a lot of money as a venture capitalist and therefore deploy that, that was for most of really the first 40 or 50 years of venture capital, that was sufficient way to differentiate myself in the market because capital was scarce and the venture capitals had it. And therefore that connoted power and connoted differentiation. What's really happened over the last 20 years, this is not just a venture thing, but look, capital generally has become cheap all across the world. Capital is no different. And so therefore capital alone no longer really differentiates folks. And so I think this has been a positive thing for the venture capital industry in that we've had to figure out is there some other value add that we can bring to an entrepreneur that allows us to differentiate ourselves in the market? The way we've approached that at Andreessen Horowitz is we've said, look, we like backing founders who want to be CEOs of their companies. And we also believe that these are inherently product-driven companies. For the most part, we invest in the you know largely software-based businesses. And so in tech, product is really important because product cycles are very fast. And if you can make a product cycle and you can miss a product cycle, it can be the difference between success or failure in a company. As an example, if you're a product-based technical founder, you may not know all the heads of all the buyers of all the potential customers that you want to sell to. And so our MO as injuries and Horowitz was if we can build those relationships and we can know the head of the FedEx procurement organization or Goldman Sachs or others, and then basically help introduce those relationships and those networks into our founders that would enable them to effectively jumpstart their sales efforts in a way that might have otherwise been, been difficult. So that's the way we've approached the business is to say, okay, if we can effectively help a product-based CEO grow into that long-term role of being the full-time CEO for the company, 
we think that can produce fantastic outcomes, obviously, for the company and for ourselves. Now, different people have different views on it. But that's kind of when we say, you know, venture capitalists are intimately involved in the business. For us, it means, number one, is helping in terms of relationships. And then number two is we always have a board member, one of our general partners who sits on the board of the company and hopefully, therefore, is a good coach and mentor and also organizational company builder that can really help the CEO grow into that long-term role. So if there ever was a time when the pitching was unilateral and you had just companies or founders going and pitching to VCs, you know, those days are over. It seems like the VCs spend at least as much time pitching to the to the founders and the founders are asking a lot of tough questions of the VCs. Uh, it's not just uh, the VCs asking tough questions of the founders. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is, again, it's not that, that this didn't happen pre-2000s or so, but the nature of this has just dramatically changed. And again, I, I do think it's what we talked about earlier, which is once capital no longer became scarce, rightly so, the entrepreneur said, okay, what else do I get besides capital? And how do I decide if I want to work with you or any of the other firms that are courting me? And so you're absolutely right. I think success in this business is really defined by really three primary things that a successful firm has to do. Number one is you've got to do the outbound relationship building and the sourcing of opportunities so that you're in the mix even when, you know, great deals come up. Two, of course, is then you've got to just, you got to pick the right winners. So hopefully you're fishing in the right pond by having done a good job on that first part, which is to build your network and get access to opportunities. But ultimately you've got to obviously, you know, I don't want to underestimate picking. It does matter a lot in this business. And then thirdly, which we talked about earlier, I think you have to find ways to add value to the company. And sometimes that may be, you know, you as a board member, sometimes it might be a set of relationships or network you can introduce them to. But I think those three have really become table stakes now for venture capitalists to be successful in this business. And look, I have no idea how to forecast exactly what the world will look like 10, 20, 30 years from now. But I would imagine we're not going back to a world where capital becomes a massively scarce resource. And so I think this idea of venture capitalists having to really think about what it is they bring to the table is number one, I think it's a good thing. And quite frankly, I think it's going to be an enduring thing in the industry. Now, of course, I think it's common phrase on in Silicon Valley to say you bet on the rider and not on the horse. Uh, and so a big part of the venture capital's job is to identify the founders that really have what it takes. And since we're both in the education business, I teach more or less full-time and you do some teaching both at Berkeley and Stanford. Maybe you could say something about what you're looking for in a founder, right? As instructors, you know, we want people to know how to read a term sheet. We want people to know how to do a DCF. We want people to know how to interpret a p-value. But you know, there are these other higher level attributes that people need to have in order to be successful. In your view, what are those higher level skills and can they be taught? So a lot of VCs that I speak to, they say, you know what, I really don't like to have MBAs as my founders. They think that somehow (laughs) either the MBA filters for people that don't have it, or if the MBA kind of beats it out of them, maybe not all MBAs. I certainly hope that our MBA doesn't do that, but um, what are you looking for? First of all, let me be totally clear. MBA or not MBA is not a filter, but but I do know certainly that people have very different views about how to think about that. But here's how I would think about it is you're absolutely right, which is look, so much of what we do at the early stage is a team-based decision because we're doing the kind of market check to say, okay, let's assume everything goes well. Do we think that a market will exist that can support a big standalone, hopefully public company at some point in time? And the reality is, look, we're trying to predict in the future. We're not often very good at that, but that's probably not a big reason for ultimately why you decide you know, to or not to invest in a company. What it really comes down to is, okay, let's assume that market is big and we believe our analysis there. It's really a question of, we know that market will attract competition. So what is it about this team that makes them uniquely suited to build go after the opportunity in a way that I can't conceive of other teams that could be better suited? 
And we think about it in a couple of ways. One is I would call it the concept of product market fit that many people have heard of, but applied to founders, which is founder market fit is maybe the simple way to think about it, which is what's the affinity between what you and your founding team have decided to do and how you came to that, right? Is it you studied this for the last 10 years or you've experienced the problem or you almost organically felt compelled to build a product to solve a problem that you had in real life and almost starting a company was in some respects an afterthought once you actually dealt with the product issues. So we're looking for something like that, which tells us what is the fitness between the founder and this idea, mostly because we want to understand what will they uniquely bring to the resolution of this problem. So that's a big uh, part of what we're trying to figure out. And then the second part, I would say, really goes to the fact that we know for these companies to be successful, the founding team is going to have to be able to recruit great people. They're going to have to be able to sell, in many cases, evangelically before the market exists, and they're going to have to go raise capital again. And so we think of those as you could put those either in the bucket of kind of leadership qualities. In the book, I use this concept of storytelling, which to me is a one way to think about how do you get people to follow you and potentially do irrational things like quitting their current job that pays them a nice salary in order to come join you on your journey. And so those are the intangibles that we tend to try to look for. Look, none of these are perfect heuristics for success, but what we found ultimately is if we have a good kind of understanding of the idea maze and the product cycle that these comp- that the uh, founders have gone through. And then we have some way to evaluate not only their leadership skills, but I would call almost their velocity of doing work. We've definitely found over time that kind of output per unit of time, the higher that is, that tends to be a reasonably good predictor of success for some of these companies. So we need people who have that mindset, which is we're going to kind of iterate, move quickly, make decisions, keep the train moving, and ultimately have a compelling enough story to be able to get people to, as I said, almost do the irrational thing of joining them for a ride that could very well end up in a pretty bad spot, just given what we know the likelihood of success is for these businesses. We all know software is eating the world and machine learning is also eating the world. And pretty much every decision is being automated and improved with AI. But the process of identifying good prospects in in the world of venture is still very much a human task. Do do you see, I mean, I know there's been a lot of efforts to try to crack the code and automate the process of deal flow selection. Do you have any hopes that this will, is this kind of the final frontier of machine learning, just producing artworks and another kind of creative tasks? I hope so. And I also want to make sure that I don't want us to look like we are, uh, Mark uh, Andreessen, my partner, uses this term sometimes, which is, are we the last dinosaurs, basically? In other words, uh, this is an industry that really has not embraced AI and machine learning in terms of the deal identification or deal selection process. And it seems hard to imagine that over time, there shouldn't be some signal that we ought to be able to derive from that data. I think the big challenge will be is so much of what we do, as I mentioned, particularly at the early stages, number one, there is no data. And so you're looking for potentially characteristics of people. And it's possible that AI could help us on that. It's also possible that it may just be that because these are basically people-driven decisions, that it still makes sense for kind of people to be involved in the process. So look, there are early efforts at this. So there are some venture firms who exclusively use AI and machine learning techniques to try to identify opportunities. Some of them use it more aggressively on what I call the upstream side, which is as a way to filter through opportunities, but then they still have human intervention on the actual picking process. It feels to me like the filtering piece may be an easier one to start with. And I think many of us will continue experiments there. 
On the actual decision-making process, as I said, at the risk of potentially being the last dinosaur, I think the jury is still out. It just seems almost inevitable that if software is eating the world at some point, it will eat venture capital. And I guess the question will be, is that in my professional lifetime or maybe in the, in the professional lifetime of your students? So we all know that as a founder, you need to understand your customer and earlier you'll be able to develop a, a viable business model. But I always like to say that the people who are investing in your company, they're customers as well. They're people that you know are effectively buying your product, buying your ideas. And so you need to get out of the building and go talk to them as quickly as possible. You know, Is it ever too early to start talking to, to investors? Even if you're thinking pre-seed, should you be going and talking to your potential Series A investors to find out what they're going to want to see downstream? I don't think there's any harm in talking to investors too early. And in fact, actually, a big piece of advice that we give founders when they raise capital is you always want to be thinking about what is the story and what is the set? What's the company going to look like at the next round of financing and then almost back into your current financing based upon what you think the next round will look like? In other words, how do I know how much money to raise today? Well, the answer is what's the right amount of money that de-risks the opportunity sufficiently so that I can then go raise additional capital when I hit to that next milestone. So I don't think there's ever any harm in doing so. The harm, of course, as you know, always with talking to any kind of customer, whether it's your actual end user customers or whether you consider venture capital as a customer is making sure that you don't over-interpret or over-conclude from that information because often people in any walk of life, people have no idea what they actually want sometimes and until they actually see it. Nobody told Steve Jobs that they needed the iPhone, for example. And so the only danger, I think, of being super early in any of these things is just that you can get a lot of false signals. And so I think that's not a reason not to do it. I just think you have to be very clear that many times people actually don't know in many cases what they're looking for, whether that's on the investor or on the customer side. But what really does work from a product development perspective is just constant iteration, right? I mean, everybody talks about, of course, lean startup and all these other wonderful things, and they're all very important. But what they really amount to is this basic fundamental idea that until you put a product in somebody's hand and allow you know, him or her to actually play around with it, it's really hard to assume that any of the kind of preconceived notions you have about the market are, in fact, correct. And you may get it right, and that's wonderful, but I think the likelihood is that you will probably get it wrong. And so the sooner you can get something into market in any respect that allows you to start iterating and getting feedback, I think the better off you are in all cases. You might think that this book is, is really targeting venture capitalists or aspiring venture capitalists, but I think it's just as interesting to entrepreneurs. Perhaps entrepreneurs make up the bulk of your buyers, I would imagine. I think at the programs that we did at, at Berkeley, we had more entrepreneurs than venture capitalists show up for the sessions. One of the most useful tips that I saw in the book related to putting together a pitch deck was making sure that you identify what are the milestones that you expect to achieve in terms of information acquisition before your next funding round. So I, I like to think of the CEO as the chief experiment officer, and uh, every pitch is really uh, a plea for more funds to run some more experiments. Is that sort of how you guys see it? Think about from the venture capitalist perspective that you're talking to today, what are they worried about? Well, they're worried about a couple things. Number one is they might pick the wrong company to back, right? It may be too early in the market and therefore they may be right on the market and wrong on which company to back. And then the second thing they're worried about is, am I the only person in the world who's going to believe this is a good opportunity and there's going to be a lot of downstream funding requirements for this business? And will other people, other investors potentially come in and follow me if I put money in as a way to help validate that? And so I think the way to think about de-risking both of those issues is exactly what you know. I think you were mentioning is... Think about today, if you're raising your seed round, what is the A round story going to look like? And if you fast forward to that, is that going to be compelling to somebody at the A round 
And therefore, that helps inform my thinking when I'm looking at this on the seed round. Jeff Bezos famously used to do this in terms of how they thought about product development, which was the first step in product development for Amazon was, what is the press release going to look like when we announce this thing and then work backwards from there to effectively figure out Therefore, what are the product development requirements associated with getting to that ultimately final form of press release? PRFAQ thing. Exactly right. Yeah. And I think in many respects, maybe this is just the analog of it for venture, which is, okay, I'm going to be here 18, 24 months from now trying to convince some other investor to you know, put more money in this. Do I believe, am I setting myself up to be able to accomplish the things I need to? And will those be compelling enough to allow someone else to actually want to come in and fund this business? And if so, if you can help your venture capitalists understand that, in the current round, that helps them think about managing the risk from downstream to financing in a way that can be beneficial to both of you. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about career paths and in particular your career path and the extent to which it helps to be a founder, to be an operator, and then become a venture capitalist, maybe vice versa. I remember when I came out to Silicon Valley in, I don't know, 1989 or 90, everyone was telling me, oh, you should consider being a venture capitalist in tech. It's so awesome. And I kept thinking, I'm not an engineer. Like, I can't do this. Don't you have to be an operator first? Don't you have to go and found a company and then go into this? So you were actually an operator. You worked on LoudCloud right. and, and so forth. And then you also were investment banking before that. Is the career path into venture capital different now? I have a lot of students that come fresh out of school and start working for a venture capitalist. Yeah, I think it's definitely, it has changed and I think it will continue to change. And there's really, you're right, there's kind of two ways to think about it. So number one is, I think what's happened is the industry has matured a bit and therefore, and we've seen this already, look, the funds, many of the funds have gotten bigger. And I don't know if I would call them institutional, maybe that's too mature of a word to use, but they have definitely thought about kind of career development in a way that I think historically they didn't. So for most of the history of this business, Venture capital firms were collections of three to five general partners, and they might have had an associate or two hanging around and stuff, but there wasn't, you know, formalized HR inside these organizations. There wasn't really much uh, in the way of career pathing. You maybe lucked into one of those jobs and uh, ultimately 10 or 20 years later became a general partner. I think what's happened now is just look, as with lots of industries, we're now going on, you know, whatever, 50, 60 years in this business. You get to a maturation point where you need to put those processes in place. And so, I think that's why you see what you're talking about now, which is some students probably more likely able to find jobs coming out of college because we've now figured out what that job is, right? So we think, okay, look, there is a kind of job for somebody who doesn't have as much experience, but who can help us think about recruiting new relationships on the entrepreneur side or help us think about building market maps and stuff like that. And those things just, again, those jobs just didn't exist before. So I think on the one hand, there is probably more democratization in terms of being able to get into this business earlier than there used to be. I would say at the senior levels, though, and this will reflect our own bias, which I fully acknowledge, I still think there is no substitute at some point in time for being part of the startup and company building process. And that doesn't mean that you need to go literally start your own company. But if you think about, again, I think what makes you successful in this business, as we talked about, it's three key things, right? Can you source opportunities? Can you pick the winners? And then ultimately, can you find a way to add value? And I think the picking of companies and ultimately adding value of companies, a lot of that I think can derive from experiences of being in a startup and seeing the company building process and talking to customers and going through the product iteration process. And it's not to say that you can't be a successful venture capital without those things. But I think if you were writing the script right now and you said, okay, I want to be a general partner and name your firm in the next 10 or 15 years, I think you would probably say, building out those second and third categories of skills is probably most well done by having had some company building or operating company experience. So 
I, I think that will still be important. And I think you'll still see the majority of people probably go through that. But now that you do have, to your point, firms starting to hire some people out of school, I think it's possible that there could be internal promotion paths that obviate the need for that. But I think we're probably not all the way there yet. Now, you describe a trend, a historical trend that happened. I guess it was right around the time that Andreessen was founded, which is that the barriers to entry in VC were starting to collapse. The Y Combinator model, the lean startup model got started, and the cost of starting a company really went down dramatically. How did this impact the bargaining power of the founders vis-a-vis the venture capitalists, the the LPs, vis-a-vis the GPs, and so forth? Yeah, so let's start with kind of VCs and entrepreneurs. It dramatically changed in favor of entrepreneurs, the bargaining power. So again, if you go back to the construct that we had talked about earlier, if you live in a world where capital is scarce and the people who have the capital are basically the venture capitalists, understandably so, the balance of power is going to probably favor more towards venture capitalists because if I'm an entrepreneur and I'm trying to compete for a constrained set of resources, that puts me naturally at a competitive disadvantage relative to the people who actually own those resources. I think, you know, in the in the old days, right, uh, in air quotes, it was definitely the case that, yes, the venture capitalists owned more of the companies. And, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but they used their bargaining power to certainly satisfy their economic interests. And then you're right, which is what started to happen in the early you know 2000s, of course, was the cost of funding these startups started to go down materially, which meant now I could raise $250,000, $500,000 and get something going on a company. Whereas before, again, in the old days, most of what I had to do was raise a bunch of venture capital because I needed to go buy servers and networking devices and all these other things, of course, that we can now rent today. And so that dramatically just changed kind of, number one, the capital requirements for these businesses and started to flip that paradigm where now the entrepreneur's capital was no longer the scarce resource. And therefore, the entrepreneurs, quite frankly, were interviewing the venture capitalists just as much as the venture capitalists were interviewing the, the entrepreneurs. Plus, they presumably demonstrate uh, success much earlier in the process. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Because you need less capital, you can run a lot more experiments. You can demonstrate success. You had also the rise of things like, let's talk about platforms, for example. We can talk about or avoid the political debate today about platforms, but one of the values of platforms was they really provided kind of sales and marketing opportunities for early stage companies uh, without the you know requirements that they actually build out initially, at least their own sales forces. So you get all this starts to happen, which does make it easier, therefore, for entrepreneurs to raise capital and then starts to just shift that competitive dynamic. So more, much more so the competitive dynamic today favors entrepreneurs. And this is why you see not just changes in term sheets, but also changes in governance structures. We never used to have uh, boards where the founders of the company controlled more board seats, for example, than did the venture capitalists. And by the way, I'm not making a normative statement here as to whether one is better than the other, but that's a natural reflection of this kind of increasing competitiveness and a resurgence of the entrepreneur's kind of predominance over the venture capitalists in a way that just didn't exist before. And then what has happened along with that, of course, is in the LP community, which are the limited partners, right, who provide capital to us, is we went through a very dark period in venture capital, you know, starting with the dot-com collapse in 99 and 2000, where anytime you looked at the returns of venture capital for a 10-year period, it was just dismal to look at it, right? The returns were not good. But then what happened again was because of this proliferation of now new entrepreneurs and lower capital requirements to start these businesses, we then started to see in 2005, 2006, 2007, obviously leading up to the global financial crisis, that venture as a broader kind of asset category was starting to actually show some much more interesting returns. And so what has happened over time is you have increasingly limited partners being willing to now 
invest greater and greater amounts of capital into venture capital and, and by the way, into other private assets. The downside case of all this would be at some point in time, do we overfund the category and do we find that the market opportunities are just not as big and exciting as we all thought. And we all fund 10 competitors in the same industry that basically just eat each other's lunch instead of creating a winner. On the other side of that, what we have seen, of course, is the market size opportunity for successful companies is just dramatically different, right? You can get to $500 billion outcomes in these companies, which was just inconceivable, even probably 10 or 15 years ago. If anybody, this whole phrase that everybody's heard about unicorns, right? The, The reason why that unicorn phrase was so important was Nobody had really seen billion-dollar companies with any kind of regularity. And so when Aileen Lee coined that phrase, it was an anomaly. Now, I hate to say it, but billion-dollar companies are table stakes at this point in time. And I think we are in a situation where I think the industry can and will continue to be very attractive from a returns perspective. It's very competitive, and that's not going to go away. But I do think we're in a situation where the potential size of the winners is just orders of magnitude when it was before And so therefore, notwithstanding the amount of capital in the industry, I think for the top players in the industry, this will still be able to produce hopefully very attractive returns. You mentioned the comparative advantage of public versus private. This is something I talk about a lot in my corporate finance class. And I think people believe that they understood this until this century when companies remain private for much, much longer. And and it seems to people who had never seen this before, it was like the the obstetrician taking care of the person into their 30s. Do you see this trend reversing itself or do you see this continuing? And and what do you think is the main reason for this? Like why we have Uber and Airbnb stayed private for so long? I would like to believe this trend will change. And you and I may have talked about this before. I've spent a decent amount of time in DC with organizations like the SEC and with people on the Hill to try and see if we can address this. I am probably more pessimistic than when I started about this trend reversing. Look, I think essentially what's happened is we've effectively kind of moved appreciation that used to happen in the public markets into the private markets. And I think there were a lot of underlying factors that started with that, probably not the least of which was companies felt that in an industry like technology, where we do have product cycles, that it was hard to be a public company and that the hard components were partly regulatory, which I'm not that worried about. In other words, it's costly to be a public company. It was hard to go public. And I think the Congress and the SEC have done a very good job of trying to right-size regulatory costs and requirements through the Jobs Act and other things. So I think that's all very positive. What hasn't changed and which I think is continuing to get more difficult is what does it look like once you are a public company in terms of how does your stock trade, who's following your stock from a research perspective. And the reason I'm a little bit more pessimistic is I think what just happened is mutual funds have gotten bigger, which also means, therefore, that they need to trade stocks that are very highly liquid because it's very hard for large mutual funds to trade sub-billion dollars, sub-couple billion dollar stocks just because every time they try to trade them, the stock price moves so much because there's low volume on these things. And so I think some of what's happened structurally in the markets is just that as the financial markets have matured and assets under management have grown in the broader kind of public market space as well, there's just this natural tendency for people to focus on higher liquidity and therefore what probably means higher value stocks. And there's things I think at the margin we can do, and there still are some policy initiatives that are at play here that might help that. But I do think that's kind of part of the longer term challenge of getting companies to go public earlier. Now, I think the other way to try and approach this problem then is, okay, if we have a situation where it's more intractable to solve having companies go public at an earlier stage, how can we then address the other side of the problem, which is, can we make sure that if a bunch of appreciation is happening in the private markets, could more of that appreciation be accessible to a broader category of people? Because I, I do believe that 
notwithstanding the fact that, look, it's great for venture capitalists and other people to be able to earn a lot of profits in the private market. It's not good for our country to, I think, have more of that appreciation kind of centered on a very small institutional investor universe. So on that side, one of the areas that I've been talking to policymakers about and others too have been talking about this is, could we change the definition or liberalize the definition of what we call accredited investors today, which is the financial requirements and other requirements that are necessary to be able to invest in private securities and expand that out so that more unaccredited today, so people who have basically less capital resources, would there be a way to allow them to participate in this appreciation of the private markets hopefully in a way that's safe as opposed to them getting taken advantage of, but trying to recognize that it may be that may be an easier part of the problem to solve than it is to try to solve these very deep capital markets structure issues that are encouraging companies to stay private longer. Well, when I've thought about the relative benefits of public versus private, I, I always think of kind of the psychological factors. So in, you know, I teach behavioral finance and we talk about bubbles and crashes and sentiment and noise traders and how those can gum up the works in public markets. And, and I kind of always thought that private markets were somewhat insulated from that. I know that they're coupled because you go public at some point, and so that works its way back into the private markets. But I always thought that the alignment of interests and the sophistication of the investors would insulate them from a lot of the kind of bubbles that you see in, in the public markets. But I'm starting to wonder whether that's naive and whether that's that, that I'm underestimating the extent to which these markets function in similar ways, particularly because the sector's just getting so big and, and you're seeing a lot more, I don't know what you might call dumb money f- flowing into the sector. Are you concerned that, you know, there are some VCs out there that are, they're not doing the solid work of value building and they're just thinking, hey, can I cycle through this? Can I dump it? Can I ask the trash and I'll be gone, you'll be gone. And by the time this cycle's over, I'll get my two and 20 and who knows what happens after that. Is there a danger that you see some of that happening in in the sector as it gets bigger? Look, any sector as it grows and matures uh, is always going to attract some some element of bad behavior. I'm not overly worried about it in this sector just because this is such a repeat relationship-based business that, you know, as inefficient in some ways as the private markets are, they are incredibly efficient in terms of transmitting information around who's done, how did people act in a certain way, and who's been short-sighted versus long-term oriented. And so I think the market has a pretty good self-correcting mechanism uh, to deal with that. I worry more about, let's call it maybe players, I hate to use the word tourists because I think that's probably a disrespectful way to do it, but People for whom this is not their primary business and then maybe seeing a short-term opportunity, I think there's more likely opportunity for potential bad behavior there. But if this is your professional career and this is what you do for a living, it's not to say that there may not be bad actors there, but I think it's very hard for it's very hard in a fairly transparent and efficient market to have reputational issues not ultimately cause problems for you, particularly in an environment where, as we talked about, where entrepreneurs have choices as to who they want to work with. And so the feedback loop is pretty tight there. So I, I worry less about that and just as I said, more about maybe just potentially people who might not be long-term committed to the asset class. But to be completely blunt, I mean, I think, look, I think that exists in, in every kind of bull market where there just may be people who are believe there is a short-term opportunity to make money. And I don't see that as a predominant part of the market right now. All right. Last question. Yeah. This book has a lot of law in it, right? You're a lawyer. You go into the details of term <laughs> sheets. You really go into all the kind of trade-offs that you have to think about, incentive misalignments you have to think about, kind of problems downstream that that you might not anticipate. And that's really what lawyers are good at. I I used to think that business person that didn't know any law is like an architect who didn't know any engineering. How important is it 
for people to really, if you're a founder, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an investor, how important is it that you have at least a, a minimal understanding of the law? I think it's important. Now, I don't think that necessarily means you have to go to law school, uh, which I did and then decided not to practice as a lawyer. I think there's probably better ways to spend your time and money. The way I think about it is what you learn in law school is you learn how to do what's called issue spotting, which is all the exams are that way in law school, right? It's okay. Let me just give you a set of facts and you kind of figure out what are all the potential issues there. And then, of course, the difference between an A or a, you know, a B or a C in law school is then the depth of your analysis of those issues. And the way I would think about it as an entrepreneur or a business person generally is you don't need to ever have the depth in any one of those categories. But I do think the idea of being able to say, okay, look, like, I have enough of a horizontal understanding of, I like to think about this way, which is when am I likely to get myself into trouble and know that I need to pick up the phone and call my lawyer and actually deal with it. So uh, I don't encourage people to be their own lawyers and do their own research. You have way more context on the business than your outside legal counsel will ever have. And issues will get missed if in some cases you don't have some basic foundational understanding that you might be tripping into a territory that you probably don't want to go into. So Maybe the solution is uh, at the risk of self-aggrandizement. Maybe if everybody just reads my book, then that's sufficient. That'll save you three years. And I don't know what it costs anymore. $200,000 probably worth of tuition to go to a, a law school. But I do think you do have to have some basic understanding of it. And look, ultimately, the other reason, in addition to being successful business, is once you're in a company and you're now sitting on the board, right, you have fiduciary responsibilities to the people and the employees and the shareholders in that company. And if nothing else, just to protect yourself, you want to make sure that you're advised around these issues and have at least a decent horizontal understanding of again, the places where you're likely to get yourself into trouble. Scott, you stole my thunder because I was going to say that. I was going to say, save yourself a couple hundred thousand dollars and go get this book. And whether you're a founder or whether well, we're, we're on the same page, in, investor, aspiring uh, VC, check out the book. I really recommend it. Secrets of Sand Hill Road. Thanks for joining me, Scott. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.